Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side by side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Most of us, all of us, I'm sure, are familiar with Isaiah 53. But uh, I lived a long time before I paid much attention to Isaiah 52. But some of you have heard me say that uh, I have a tendency to look for the high point, and I tend to skip the things that come before the high point. Or like uh, Galatians 2.19, I never paid any attention to. I was getting to 2.20. And uh, 2.21, I never paid any attention to. So when I was a pastor, I decided I ought to preach a series of sermons on great texts before great texts. And when I finished that, I decided to preach them on great texts after great texts. Now, I want to deal with one of those before passages tonight, Isaiah 52, and it is a, it's a priceless passage. Now, you will notice that this is a message which is addressed to the city of Jerusalem. In the first verse, it is referred to as Zion. In the, in the second part of the first verse, it is listed, addressed, O Jerusalem, the holy city. In the second verse, it's O Jerusalem. And the second verse closes with, O daughter, captive daughter of Zion. So the prophet here, speaking the word of God, is speaking to the holy city. Now, you have to understand that Jerusalem was considered the center, certainly the center of the people of God. Uh, you remember that the Jews looked upon Jerusalem as the tummy button of the earth because that was the navel of the earth. That's where heaven's umbilical cord hooked onto the earth and all of God's blessings came down to the world through his holy city, through his holy people and out to the world. So that uh, what we're talking about now is not just a word to the people of God, but it is a word to the central, central point of the people of God, the very holy city itself. And the prophet speaks, and his word to the people of God is, Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength. So what you have is, this word is addressed in a period when the people of God had gone to sleep. And they were sleeping, they were, they were dead as far as the things of God were concerned, in spite of the fact they were the people of God. So what you have is a call to the church a call to the church to arouse itself and to awake. And he says, clothe yourself with strength. The church is not only asleep, the church is also weak. It's lost its power and its strength and is inconsequential in the world. Instead of being the means through which the grace of God goes out to redeem a lost world, it's in need of redemption itself. So he says, you're asleep and you're weak and you're helpless. Put on your garments of splendor. Now, the city of Jerusalem is, uh, is addressed in many places as a place of splendor. It was supposed to be that. And when a people are a people of God, there is a splendor, a glory about them. So the people of God have lost the glory out of their midst. The glory of God is no longer there. I'm sure there is an echo of this in glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. And so they're asleep. They are they are helpless, and they have lost their glory, and they are unclean. You will notice, he says, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. 
Now, we need to be careful in understanding that verse because in that day, the world was divided between the people of God and the people of, and the, between Israel, God's people called people, and the rest of the world, and God's holy people were the circumcised people. Now, there were other people that practiced that, but circumcision was the mark of the covenant of God, and because it was the mark of the covenant of God, that word was simply used as a synonym for the people of God, the circumcised. And so those who were not the people of God were called the uncircumcised. Now, that does not mean that a Jew, because he was circumcised, was pleasing God. Because if you'll read in Deuteronomy, before Moses died, he said, it's circumcision of the heart that counts, not circumcision of the flesh. Unless the circumcision brings you to the place where you love God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, your circumcision is a lie, and you're just like the people who are uncircumcised out there. And if you read chapter 56, you will find that God has nothing against the uncircumcised. He loves them just as much as he does the circumcised. But he, uh, in chapter 56, there's a magnificent passage where uh, God tells about a day when all the uncircumcised, the strangers, the foreigners of the earth, will come to Jerusalem, walk the courts of the, of the temple in Jerusalem and worship uh, and praise the Lord God. But what the prophet is saying is, or God is saying through the prophet, there's not an ounce of difference. You are defiled like the world that's around you. There is no difference in the way the believers live and the way the unbelievers live. And so he says, uh, I want to tell you, I'm going to bring you to the place where there is a radical difference between the church and the world, and the difference will be well, the church will be clean once again and in, in contrast to a world that's living its own way. And so you see a church that is asleep, a church that has lost its power, a church that has lost its glory, a church that is defiled and unclean. And he says, shake off your dust, rise up, sit in throne. Now, that word it translated uh, sit in throne is simply the word sit, but that's a, the king is the one who sits and the queen is the one who sits with him. And that's the context for that translation and for that, and for that expression here. The people of God are supposed to be a royal people and there's supposed to be a glory about them. And so they're to sit in heavenly places. They're to sit with God. And so he says to the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, supposed to be holy, Rise up, get out of the dust, and become sit in throne. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now, what a litany of negatives about the people of God. They're asleep. They've lost their strength, their power. They have lost their glory, their splendor. They are unclean like the world around them. They uh, have chains on their necks. They're bound by their own sins and by their own ways, and the freedom that belongs to the people of God has been lost. You will notice that in Scripture again and again, salvation is equated with freedom, because when Christ comes and really, set, and really saves a person, we talk about him being set free. And so the very people of God that are showed to the world what liberty is and what freedom is, they've lost their own freedom because of their own sin. Now, he says, for this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. In other words, when they left God, God didn't get anything for losing his people. 
And when they come back, they're not going to be redeemed by money. They're going to be redeemed, as you and I know, they're going to be redeemed by the one who comes up in Isaiah 53. They're going to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice, the suffering servant in the next chapter. And this, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. They've known what bondage was before. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them, and they've known what bondage is recently. But now, I want to set my people free again, awake, bring them awake, uh, give them back their power, and put, give them back their glory, and cleanse them so that they're clean, and let them sit with me, and as they do, set them free and take the chains from the neck from their neck. I wonder if, if Charles Wesley may have had something, uh, had this passage in mind, among others, when he said, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth to follow thee. Okay. Now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people, he says, as I said, have been taken away for nothing. Those who rule them mock, and all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Now, what does it mean to blaspheme the name of God? So oftentimes we think of it in the sense of cursing. I suspect that here a case could be made that what is being meant is that the name of God is being associated with things that don't belong to be associated with God so that people are saying, putting God and uncleanness, putting God and impotence, putting God and, uh, uh, and, and, and bondage, putting the Lord God, the God of Israel, together with, so that people no longer know that the Lord God of Israel is the way of salvation, the way of freedom, and the way of glory uh, and release for people. So he says, uh, uh, all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Now, who is it blaspheming them? It's the people who claim the name of God but don't live like it. It's the people who use his language but don't express his redemption within them. They're just like the world around them, except that they're religious, okay, and use religious language, and re use Israel's religious language. Now he says, therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, and there is a key expression, in that day, God has a better day for his people. He is not going to leave them in their present state. He wants to redeem his people. Isn't it interesting when the redeemed need to be redeemed, when the saved need to be saved? And so he's saying that when the called need to feel again the call of God in their lives, and uh, when the elect need to get elected again, <laughs> and uh, when the predestined need to be re-predestined, that's what you've got here. He says, that day is coming. He said, uh, therefore my people will know my name, in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. And God draws attention to himself. And then comes this magnificent little verse that you are familiar with that is uh, picked up. Uh, you know, Handel picks it up, and uh, but Paul picks it up in uh, Romans 10 when he's talking about how can they hear without a preacher and how can he preach unless he's sent and how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings. And here it is. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Now, the peace here is that the, that the, um, the problems between God and his people 
will be removed and there will be peace established instead of the discontinuity that is now presently there. He, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. It's interesting when the people of God need to be told that their God is the one who's in charge. It's interesting when the people of God have lost the knowledge that their God is in charge and is running things. And so he says, they're coming those who will look, and what is our message? Our message is that this God is the one who began it, will end it, he's in control, he's sovereign, and if you believe that, you'll straighten your life out with him. And so these come, and their message is, your God reigns. Now, when I read that, uh, all I can think about, or at least what comes to my mind first, is that passage in 1 Corinthians that says that no man can say that Jesus is Lord saved by the Holy Spirit. In the flesh, you and I cannot say, yeah, he reigns. But it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart that a person can come to the place where he says, I know he's in control. All the circumstances may be counter to what I'd like for them to be, but I know that he's control, in control, and he, he started it, he's going to end it, he's in control now, and I need to be lined up with him. And it takes the Holy Spirit's work in a person's heart to get him to say, Jesus is Lord. Now he says, I want to say something about that verse. That is of particular interest to us because this is the third time that the word evangelist occurs as far as I can find anywhere in the Bible. It occurs in Isaiah 40, it occurs in Isaiah, I believe it's 41, and it occurs in this chapter. How beautiful upon the mountains are they? The uh, Hebrew of that is Mabaflarim, the ones that bring good tidings. The Greek of that is euangelistes, or in English it would be evangelist. And the where we got the word evangelist, I think is from this passage, basically. Because, uh, you see, uh, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, when the Jews got to the place where they didn't understand Hebrew, and they're living in a Greek world, so they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and they began reading it, the passage here says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the evangelist who bring good news, who bring good tidings, who proclaim peace, who proclaim salvation. So this is a verse of special interest to us. Now, who is it that speaks to the church? You know, I always thought of the evangelist as the one who preaches to the sinner. But the text here is the evangelist is speaking to a backslidden church, a church that isn't what it's supposed to be. And he is the one who comes to the people of God and says, I have good news for you. Now, uh, that's part of a bit a pattern that is in this passage that is very interesting to me. He says, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion. Now, you know, I read that for years before I realized the shock in it. Do you know where the Lord lived? He lived in the temple, supposedly. And where was the temple? It was in the holy place, on that holy site, in the center of Jerusalem. But now you have the people of God, and God has departed from the people of God. Did you know that God can depart from his own house? Just like God can depart from your heart or mine, if we turn our backs on him, and turn away, and reject and refuse him. And so what does the evangelist say to the church? He says, you can have the God back you knew and now you've lost him. 
He says, when your God returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good picture of denominations in the United States. Now, there may be exceptions, but I'm a United Methodist. (laughs) It looks to me like a disaster area. (laughs) I appreciated what Jim said (laughs) about he went to annual conference, and he decided what they were doing was doing their best to create new loopholes for condoning sin. And uh, isn't that a pretty good picture of much of religious leadership in America? And uh, he gave Paul a compliment for us. He said, and I suppose your business is to close all the loopholes. <laughs> now, you see, that's what you've got in much of American Protestantism and denominations. Uh, you know, I find it among Presbyterians. I find it among Episcopalians. I find it among all of the classical denominations of America. Many Among many Lutherans, you can just keep going. But here, he says, he speaks of... Uh, Jerusalem, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, because you don't have to stay like this. Renewal can come, revival can come to a backslidden church. Revival can come to a church that is in, in ruins. For Yahweh, the Lord, has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting when the redeemed need to be redeemed, you see. But that's what he's saying here. He's saying that the holy city... It now needs to be redeemed, and God is able to redeem it. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, uh, when God redeems the church, not the world, when God redeems the church, what he says is, the Lord will be able to lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. Now, I think there's a principle here that is very, that is really at the heart of what FAS is all about. And that is that if you want to reach the world for Christ, the church has to become, the the body of Christ has to become salt again. And we are no longer salt. And so, the greatest need for the world is for the church to become what it's supposed to be. And so, the word of God at the present moment is to us. Not to the world out there. We don't need to worry about people uh, that are... The place to start is with you and me to get our hearts to where they're aflame with the fire of God, the power of God, the presence of God, the purity of God, the love of God. Because if we become what what we ought to be, when we are the people of God, then it is that the world says, explain that. And there's only one explanation, and that's Christ. And then Christ can begin to get the center stage. And the only way Christ can get the center stage is for him to have the center stage in his people's heart. So you see that message of holiness, just the call to it runs all the way through Scripture. I've gone through a good bit of the Old Testament looking at this. It's interesting that no prophet really ever preached like this to uh, Rome or to Athens or to Babylon or to Alexandria in Egypt. The word, the call for repentance comes to the church. And when the church repents, then the world has a chance. And so the biblical pattern is. Now he says, Yahweh the Lord will lay bare his holy arm 
in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, how, where do, how, do we, how do we move to get the ends of the earth to know Christ? We begin by letting him do within us what he wants to do so that the stream can start within us and can flow from us, from the body of Christ, out to a world that's perishing and that's lost. And so that fits with Jesus on that last day, the great day of the feast. He stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, and out of his inward parts will flow rivers of living water like that passage in Ezekiel 47, where out of Jerusalem, you will remember that stream comes that moves south into the Dead Sea area and turns the Dead Sea into, an, into a sea of life and of fish and of fruitfulness. Now, uh, where does the salvation of the world start? It starts with you and me. And so that's that reason we, the high calling, that's the reason for the emphasis of a deeper life, that's the reason for the emphasis upon uh, holiness of heart and life. The, the people of God become what God wants them to be, and the world has a chance. Now, so God so loved the world enough that he wants us to be what we should be so that we can be part of his redemption of the world. Now, how do we get to where we can do that? He makes it crystal clear. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels, or you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, who are the people who bear the vessels of the Lord? They're the priests. And who are the priests? God said when he called Israel, he said, I will make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And priests do not minister for themselves. First of all, they minister for other people. And we are to be the ones who carry the vessels of the Lord to the earth. But if we're to carry the vessels of the Lord and be the priests who stand between a world that's lost and a God who's holy and loved and wants to save them, if that world that doesn't know God has a chance, it will only be when we, the priests, the body of Christ, when we are pure and when we are clean and when we are holy. So he says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure. Now, uh, I don't know how a message could get clearer than that. <laughs> I read that for years before it all, I saw the way it all, it's an, it's an incredibly tightly knit, very logically developed message to the people of God that they need to repent so the world can have a chance. So I find myself when I get there with a passage like this saying, Lord, is there, is there something in me that's blocking your, your glory and blocking your power to move through me? Now, the other day uh, I had a conversation with a fellow who is in evangelistic work out in the Northwest. And uh, he was, I was fascinated by him in many ways. Uh, he uh, was a pastor for years. And then he felt that God had called him into evangelism. And he says, I have a passion to save souls, to see people saved. And so he said, I gave up my pastorate, and I work in evangelism. He said, in the Northwest, there's no place for an evangelist in the summer, so I have June and July free. He said, I spend it reading, praying, substituting for preachers who are on vacation. But he said, I try to preach 33 weeks out of the year. He said, my annual income is $12,500. You see, the, the church does not believe in 
the evangelist anymore. So they will not support him. I said, how do you live? He said, my wife is a CPA. Now, you know, I, uh, <laughs> some of you have read this book, uh, the biography of Hugh, or the story of Hugh Latimer, written by Clara Stewart. Uh, Claire Stewart's a little, those of you who don't know her, a little Presbyterian lady, missionary to Zaire for years. She's about 81. Uh, she wrote this. She spent 11 years working on the story of Hugh Latimer, who was a martyr for Christ in Great Britain and the British in the English Reformation. She said, I work, I lived with him for 11 years. I count him a friend. She's dying with cancer. So I got word, uh, I got a letter from her this from her daughter this week, saying my mother wanted me to write and thank you that FAS uh, helped promote her book, because uh, most Christian bookstores today really don't carry decent, serious biographies, and so there's no marketing for a lot of this stuff. That's one of the things that we've got to to do and find a way to do. She said so. If she wanted me to write and thank you, and said to tell you that she's looking forward in a few days to seeing Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer, and and Thomas Bilney. And I thought, that's the way to go. <laughs> she spent 11 years studying, and she said, maybe next week I'll meet him. And there's that joy in her. But uh, this guy, when I get to heaven, one of the things I want to see is see the reward that God has for that wife who's a CPA. Now, her husband works, spends one month a year with Luis Palau. And what they do is they take a state. They've started a new program. Like this year, they worked in Maine. And they spend a month trying to reach a state. And so he said, Luis Palau preaches in the big auditoriums and to the bigger crowds, and they send me to the smaller ones. But he said, you know, 20% of the converts in that crusade were in my little church. And there was no bragging in it. It was not an ounce of bragging. He was just saying, God is faithful. And he said, when you preach the gospel... If you preach it clearly, there will be a response. Now, he says you have to confront people. He says nobody ever changes until he's confronted, until the, until there's cognitional dissonance in their life, to use the psychiatrist's term. He said, now, you've got to do it in love. But, you know, they've got to find out they're unsaved before you can get them saved. And he says that means a certain element of confrontation. But that's just simply being lovingly honest with them, isn't it? So I found myself responding to him. He said, when I go into a church, he said, I do four, I preach four things. And I want to give you somebody else's sermon. He said, the first thing I preach is, he said, you can, or he said, you can find all sin under four categories. He said, it's all there under four categories. And these four categories are where you substitute religion for relationship. Now, I mentioned that last night, but that is a priceless expression of it. Do you know who crucified Jesus? It was religious people. Do you know who stoned John Wesley? It was religious people. Do you know who almost killed, martyred Martin Luther? It was religious people, Christian religious people, church religious people. He said the greatest hindrance to people being saved is religion. It's not overt sin, it's religion. And he says, they think they're saved, so how can they be saved when they're not saved and think they're saved? You can't become what you, what you don't know you are. And so he said, 
The first thing I have to do is just preach away that religion is the enemy of a personal relationship. And it's only a personal relationship that is saved. We've placed oftentimes a great emphasis on a religious experience. A religious experience will never save anybody. I had one very clearly eight months before I was converted, but I wasn't saved. I can remember going home feeling better. I had a religious experience, but I was as lost as could be. It is only Christ that saves, and we must be very careful to keep those clear. Okay. Now, uh, he said the second thing is, most of the people that sit in front of you have bitterness in their heart somewhere. He said 80% of the people who go to counselors have a problem with bitterness. Now, what's the heart of bitterness? I'm just beginning to process this, but but you think with me for a minute. What makes a person bitter? It basically is where I think I deserve better than this, which means that God has let me down, has not been done all he ought to do for me. He's not protected my interests. And so he has let me get in a place where people have used me or hurt me or done something else. And that bitterness destroys. And it is the exact opposite of agape New Testament love. It is exactly the opposite of what Christ wants to put in my heart. Then when I haven't got, when you, when you've dealt shabbily with me, <laughs> and when you've really dealt shabbily with me, if I'm natural, I'll resent it. If I'm got the Holy Spirit in divine love in my heart, I will love you. And it will be a positive response instead of a disassociating negative uh, response. So he says, they've got to get out of their bitterness into the, into the power of the love of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. The kind that Jesus had and the kind that Stephen had when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you can keep on going down through the church. The Methodist evangelist in Wesley, or preacher in Wesley's day, one of his lay preachers, that when they had stoned him and chased him out of the town and uh, mobbed him and rolled him through the village sewer, which was an open ditch, he walked away and he said, and I felt only love, nothing but love. Now, uh, nobody can do that without the grace of God. <laughs> but that, but, but when God is there, he can put his love in it. So he said, Next thing I deal with is the bitterness that's in people's hearts everywhere. Husbands against wives, wives against husbands, kids against their parents, parents against their kids, old people against younger people, you know, the pastor against his church, church people against their pastor. He said, it's everywhere. And he said, the bitterness has to go. So he said, I preach it. Isn't that interesting? Now, he says the third thing is uh, sexual impurity has to be traded for Clean, moral, spiritual purity. Uh, I was interested. He said, you know, there are 50,000 websites that promote pornography on the Internet. He said, the indications now are that one out of every five clergymen in the United States that are addicted to pornography on the web. Now, I don't know. He said, that's the report to come. I, I know enough to know there are plenty. And it's not all preachers. I don't know about you, but I've often wondered, why is sex such a mess for us? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just strip it out somewhere or other 
and make people marvel so that uh, it wasn't such. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have a TV evening without it being introduced? <laughs> it's impossible to have a TV evening without it being introduced somewhere, isn't it? Now, why is it there? You know why I think it's there? It is the closest thing in power to the love of God in human experience. And it is supposed to be an analogy of the love of God. And the most powerful thing in human experience is the love of God. That little girl in Littleton, Colorado, who's, when he looked at her and said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes. Uh, Hugh Latimer, when he turns to the bishop behind him, when they're igniting the fire, says, be of good cheer, Brother Ridley. We'll, we'll light a candle today that will brighten all England. And they died gloriously. Or Thomas Cranmer, who had denied his, his, his faith and then turned when they took him to the fire, stuck his right arm into the flames and said, this is the one with which I signed my uh, re rejection of the faith. It must go first. And his, so his hand could be burned first. Now, the most powerful thing in human existence is the love of God in the human heart. And God said, I want an analogy in the natural world. And so he made everybody that you know, male or female. And human sexuality is this incredible drive within us. And it can either drive us to what is good and holy and help us understand it more perfectly, or it is the way to pervert and a substitute for it. And when it's a substitute for the real thing, the thing that it is analogical to, when it is a substitute, it is totally destructive and defiling. And we're living through that in America. And so he says, it's a problem. But he said, there is a grace that can uh, clean a person up. <laughs> it is possible. Now, as he talked, I had two memories. I'll never forget. You know what we've lived through with Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, and now uh, an evangelist is, that's the characterization that we get. I remember I had an evangelist in one, in a church I served. And some months after he left, one of the ladies in the church was in a counseling session with me, and she said, I've got a wayward heart. She said, uh, the evangelist stayed in her home. And she said, one night my husband had to be away. And at 11 o'clock in my uh, robe, I knocked on the evangelist's door and offered myself to him. I never knew any of this until months later. I was fascinated that she told me. And she said, he looked at me and called me by name and said, you get back in your room and you lock your door and I'll lock mine. I remember a story I heard when I was younger about an evangelist who had been away from home for weeks, staying in a home with a young couple. After the husband left for, after breakfast one morning, she uh, opened her robe and presented herself to him, and he looked at her and said, Honey, I wouldn't hurt you for anything in the world. Get your clothes on. And he went for a long walk. Is it possible for a person to be clean? If a person can't be clean, then the gospel is a fraud. May not be easy. Never says it's easy. 
But if, if, if a person cannot live clean and pure, the gospel is a fraud. Because you'll notice the text. It says, they that bear the, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. Now, uh, we don't have to live in that kind of stuff. There is a power that can cleanse us. And uh, when a person gets involved in any way, compromising that way, the power, go, the spiritual power goes out of his life and he becomes like this, where God says, awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength to get your strength back. Now, uh, he said, uh, the fourth thing is, he said, the wrong standards of values that people have. He said, really, it's their appetites. And he says, they love things and they want things that strip their lives of the blessings of God. So he says, you have to contrast the wrong standards of value with an appetite that is ex that that puts God supreme and, and first where you want him more than you want anything else. Now, you know, uh, as he talked something, I felt something that I've felt more and more in recent years. You know what I've decided is the greatest gift that God can give a person? I almost think it's better than forgiveness. <laughs> I almost think it's better than heart purity. I wonder if the greatest gift that God cannot give a person is spiritual hunger. Because if I hunger enough, I'll find forgiveness. I'll find him. And when I find him, I'll find forgiveness. If I'm hungry enough, I'll let him cleanse me, my heart and my life of the things that are alien to him and that are offensive to him. The things within me. I'll, I'll come to the place where I hate the things within me that drove him to the cross, as we said last night. And, uh, you know, it's so much easier to pray when you're hungry for him. <laughs> John Wesley, I, I, I'm not sure where I got it, but I, I have in my possession a little pamphlet that was published in 1760 by John Wesley. It's uh, the life of the Marquis de Renty, who was a French Christian and a very devout man. He was a wealthy man, a man, a nobleman. And so one day he turned to his servant and said, I have an hour to pray. Prayer goes so quickly. I have, a, I have some responsibilities that I must face. So at the end of an hour, call me. At the end of an hour, the servant went in, <laughs> and Durante was so lost in adoration of God and praise that the servant felt like it would be almost a, a violation, profanation of holy things for him to call him. So he waited another hour. Durante didn't come out. And when another hour had passed, he backed into Durante's room <laughs> and without looking, called the Marquis. And told him, and the Durante arose and said, thank you. An hour goes so quickly when I'm in the presence of my beloved. Now, that's the love of God. Now, I'm not there, but I'm closer than I once was. And I've got a hunger in my heart for him. <laughs> and I know I didn't put it there. He's the one who put it there. 
And I say to him, God, intensify that hunger. Make me hunger for you more. Because if you hunger for him enough, you don't have to have anything else. And if you hunger for him enough, then he can give you what he pleases, and you're content. And he can take what he pleases, and you're content. Because he is enough. Now, I don't know what anybody else feels, but to me, that's as good a definition of what the scripture means by a holy heart, a pure heart, a clean heart, as I would know. One where he, Christ reigns supreme, and he is the first love of your life, and you can live without anything else, but you can't live without him. It's interesting, the Bible gets different when you have that kind of love in your heart, when you're hungry. Uh, witnessing is different when you have that kind of hunger in your heart. Preaching is different when you have that kind of hunger in your heart. <laughs> Personal relationships are different when you have that kind of hunger in your heart. Worship is different when you have that kind of hunger in your heart. And uh, he is able to put that kind of uh, cry in our spirits for him to where we want him. And we want him more than anything else. We can live without anything else, but we cannot live without him. Now, how do you get there? You don't do that by resolution. You can screw up your resolution all you want to. You will never make it. It's interesting. The love of God is a gift from God, and you've got to let him put his love in you if you're going to have that. It is something he does within us, and he only does it as we surrender and as we believe. Now, that basically is what I wanted to say tonight. And I think it makes, gives us a reason for existing. And that is, anywhere we can, to, to do anything we can do to see the church become what it's supposed to be. To where it becomes the people of God. Where it becomes a light, a light in the Gentile. Where it becomes the way for a world that's lost. But it will only be that if it is what God wants it to be. And I guess that keeps the burden on you and me that we need to be uh, clean. It's interesting, uh, as the years have passed, the word clean has gotten more powerful to me. <laughs> I think I've gotten to the place where the supreme compliment in my language, in my heart, about anybody is when I can say about it, he's clean. <laughs> he's clean in his personal relations. He's clean or she's clean in her personal relations. I think it's, to me it's sort of a synonym for, I think, what the Bible means. Purity. We're not in it grasping for anything for ourselves. We're not in it to control anybody else. We're not in it to manipulate things in our favor. We're in any relationship that we're in for Christ's sake. And we want his will done regardless of what happens to us. And when we get to that point, I think there's a cleanness about us. And the blood of Christ can do that. Now, uh, so it's interesting the world is without Christ. And the one nation in the world that has the best opportunity to influence the world is sterile because the church is not what it ought to be. So the greatest need in the world today is for the church to become the people of God, the holy people again. He's called us to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Our character is to be holy and our ministry is we are to be priests for a world. That's what I want to talk about.
Isn't that an interesting passage? Was it clear as I went through? Now he said, um, it's been a privilege to be here, but I'd just like to make clear what your burden is. And so he turned around and took a glass of water, and he said, I'd like a little help. And he pointed to a young faculty wife who was sitting on the front row. And he said, he was a southerner, and he said, honey, will you come help me? And so she walked up, I'll never forget, on his left side. He held this glass in his left hand. And he said, now, honey, put your two hands on my left arm. So she put both of her hands on his left arm. He said, now, squeeze. So they, she squeezed his arm. Now he said, shake my arm hard. And she froze and didn't. And he said, uh, it's all right. I asked Dr. Kenlaw. He said it would be all right. Now shake my arm. So she shook and water went everywhere. He put the glass down. And then he said, now, honey, why did it spill water? Oh, she said, because I shook your arm. Oh, no, he said. It didn't spill water because you shook my arm. It spilled because you shook my arm. Why did it spill water when you shook my arm? Oh, he said, she said, well, it's because there was water in the cup, the glass. He said, thank you, honey. Thank you. You may sit down. (laughs) And then he said, You know, we're very wrong in our language. We say, she made me mad. No, she didn't make you mad. She just shook you. And the anger that was already there spilled out. (laughs) She said, he said, you say, he hurt me. Said, you know, you can't get anything out of a glass if it isn't in it. That is the greatest holiness illustration I've ever heard. And, you know, when he got through with his message, he said, now, uh, before we close, I want to invite anybody who wants to pray to come to the altar. But he said, you know, Jesus said, when you come to the altar, if your brother has anything against you, Go make it right with your brother before you come to present your gift. So he said, you got brothers and sisters here. And if there's anything wrong between you and any of your brothers and sisters, get it straight before you come to the altar. That's the reason for the empty rows of seats. You'll have easy access to each other. I was so glad I was sitting on the front row and couldn't see a thing. I shut my eyes, sealed them tight. But I could hear. It was still as death. And then in a few moments, I heard some feet. And I heard the feet, and they didn't come to the altar. They stopped on the way. That was the beginning of a change in the spiritual atmosphere in the faculty at Asbury College. Now, I think that's what, I think that's what Isaiah is talking about here. And so, get the bitterness out. It's interesting how how harsh the Bible is on grumbling. (laughs) Because grumbling is considered a sin 
and it's a sin against God because he hasn't treated you as well as he ought to. Look at the end of this passage. You see the first line in verse 13, see my servant will act wisely. Now, uh, who is the servant? That is the beginning. Verse 13 is the beginning of Isaiah 53. And what is Isaiah 53? Uh, it's, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now that's what follows this. But now hold on, let me show you something. Look at verse uh, verse 1 of 52. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Then look at verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, the church is supposed to put on its strength so that the holy arm of God can be manifest. Now, what is the holy arm? It's the power of God, isn't it? Now, what is the power of God? We don't have it on here. But can you say with me the first verse of Isaiah 53? Who has believed our report? What I've got to tell you is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what is the arm of the Lord and the power of God that's going to be revealed to a lost world so it'll know that God reigns? It's not signs and wonders. You know what it is? It's the broken, bleeding form of the eternal Son of God hanging on a cross. And you know what the power of God is in my life? For me to suffer without bitterness. For me to take it victoriously and take it lovingly. The power of God is the cross, the arm of God. And when the church repents, They'll see the way of salvation is by sacrifice. And it's interesting, the New Testament says that it's in his body that we're saved. And we are his body. And it's by the broken, bleeding body of Christ. So that when we involve ourselves in the needs of the world and do not let it embitter us, take it all in the love of God. Janine's living in it in Latin America. And if there's grace for a guy who knows when he starts the day, he may be dead before he ends. That's a glorious gospel, isn't it? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings. That say to Zion, our God reigns.